podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Haddonfield, New Jersey. This episode is a sermon preached by Reverend Marvin Lindsay titled, Known Unknowns. It's based on Acts chapter 17, which contains the story of Paul talking about the good news of Jesus Christ with some philosophers in the city of Athens. The sermon has some guidelines about how Christians can engage in conversation with people who are not yet disciples of Jesus Christ. I hope that you'll enjoy Because as we know, there are known knowns. That is, there are things we know we know. We also know that there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know that there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. It is the latter category that tends to be the difficult one. Known knowns, known unknowns, unknown unknowns. It's kind of like Dr. Seuss for grown-ups, right? It, it sounds silly, but it's really profound. And I thought about this quote from the late Secretary of Defense this week, reading about the Apostle Paul's discovery in Athens of an altar dedicated to an unknown God. The Greek word for unknown is agnostos. We get the word agnostic from that word. And agnostics in contemporary society neither worship nor reject God. About the existence of God, well, they just don't know. Curiously, uh, some Athenians worshipped a God they were agnostic about. That's interesting. And as for us, well, the thing that we Presbyterians often don't know much about is how to talk about God with people who don't know what they think about God. That's the known unknown for us. How do we engage in a fruitful and profitable conversation with people who are not yet disciples of Jesus Christ? Maybe Paul and his speech to the Greeks in Athens can give us some wisdom on this advice, on this account. Maybe he can make known to us what is unknown to us, just as he made known to the Athenians something that was unknown to them. Now, at the beginning of the story, we find Paul in Athens telling anybody who will listen, whether they are pagans and polytheists, or whether they're philosophers, or whether they are Jewish monotheists like himself, telling them that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And some people dismiss this good news as nonsense. And there's enough concern about what Paul was saying that he is taken into custody and the council asks for a more fuller explanation of what he has been saying in the marketplace. The Athenians, writes Luke, write Luke, used to spend their time in doing nothing but talking about or listening to the newest thing. Paul's message is the newest thing in Athens, and they want to hear more about it. Imagine a city whose public discourse is filled with nothing but hot takes and the latest takes. Oh, that's not, that's not too hard to imagine, now, is it? And so Paul begins by saying this, Athenians, I see that you are very religious in every way. Now this is a strange way for a Jewish man who is appalled by the number of idols in the city to begin his talk. What is he doing? Is he trying to butter up the Athenians? Not necessarily. The word religious can also be translated superstitious. I see that you are extremely superstitious, says Paul. You're like a baseball player with this rally cap 
the rabbit's foot that he rubs. I think Bryce Harper, when he first came into the league, I don't know if he's still doing this now, but he used to take seven showers a day and eat only Lego waffles on game day. That's that's why he, you know, that's why he's a great baseball player. One Stoic philosopher said that uh, superstition is religion without knowledge. Religion without knowledge. And the Athenians were religious to the point of superstition. They had an altar to an unknown god. They had other altars as well, and you had to go to uh, certain temples and make certain sacrifices to certain deities at the right time in order to, say, make your crops grow or, I don't know, defeat the Persians in battle or whatever. But just to cover their bases, they also make sacrifices to gods not otherwise specified. You can't get more superstitious than that. And Paul uh, supports his argument against idolatry with quotes from the Greek philosophers. So he speaks against something of what he's seeing in Athens, but he also speaks makes that argument in language that the Athenians can understand, in concepts that they themselves have come up with. Paul says God doesn't live in a temple. It's the other way around. We live in God. In God we live and move and have our being, wrote the philosopher Epimenides. Paul quotes that to the Athenians. And God has no appetite that needs to be satisfied by slaughtering animals and roasting them on an altar. Paul sounds here a lot like the Greek philosopher Seneca, who wrote this, God has no need for anything to be conferred, nor could we confer anything on God. And while there are many nations across the face of the earth, and each has its own pantheon of deities, the divine nature is one, says Paul. And the one God has created one human race from a common ancestor. And that common humanity trumps any difference between us. Did not one of your poets say, we too are God's offspring? Paul asked. At bottom, we are all children of God. And because our common humanity points to God's oneness, we need to admit, Paul says, that the beauty and grandeur and goodness of God can't be captured by the most talented artist or the most skilled sculptor. Only human beings in their totality can reflect to us the image and the glory of God. And true worship, Paul implies, is the preservation of that divine image by seeking the well-being of our neighbor and the restoration of the divine image by seeking justice for those who are oppressed and giving food to those who are hungry, and supporting those who are sick and disabled. How do I know that this is true, Paul finally asked? Because, because God has raised someone from the dead and appointed him judge of all. Because we will all be judged, justice toward our fellow human beings is our paramount concern. Not polishing idols, not making sacrifices. Paul characterizes all of Athenian history, that, that proud intellectual capital of the Western world, as a time of ignorance, a time of groping about in the dark, for God who, in fact, is not all that far off. But if that's the case, if God is close at hand, why is it so hard to get our hands on God? 
Well, the pastor and scholar Philip Bruce Jones points out that the only comparable experience we have of living in another being is our experience of being in the womb. When it comes to the knowledge of God, then our dilemma is something like asking the fish to describe the ocean. God is all around us. Despite that, God's nearness, it's difficult to know who God is, since God surrounds us as completely as a pregnant mother envelops her child. So Paul, as missionary, as proclaimer of the good news here, he's kind of like a midwife to the Athenians. He's trying to birth them into a new relationship with God in which God is still close, but God is also knowable and capable of being loved. The God who raised Jesus from the dead to judge the living and the dead was an unknown unknown for the Athenians. Again, to quote Secretary Rumsfeld, that possibility had never occurred to them before. The Athenians, both the pagans and the philosophers, believed that all that lay beyond the grave was a kind of shadowy, vapory existence. And in, in general, it was better to be dead, alive than dead. The idea that God would summon from the tomb a human being to judge the living and the dead, well, that was something that many of them found preposterous. The idea that a world beyond this one could be better and more just, that too seemed preposterous. They made fun of all. They mocked them. Not all of them. Some of them were intrigued. You know, we want to hear more about this. Um, but they were not committed. And then a very few of them became believers. And Paul is released from custody, and he leaves Athens, and he moves on to a different city to proclaim the good news. What can we learn from this speech that Paul makes to very different people in a very different time and place? Well, I want to make three points. First, by quoting the Presbyterian Study Catechism. It says that when we encounter people who are outside the faith, we should meet friendship with friendship, hostility with kindness, generosity with gratitude, persecution with forbearance, truth with agreement, and error with truth. And that's what Paul does in his speech on Mars Hill. Paul says that idolatry is not true piety, but it's ignorant superstition. And that is true for us in this day and age. If we make anything other than God the sum total of our life, if we make anything other than God the meaning and goal of our lives, then we've engaged in ignorant superstition. But he makes this criticism by drawing on true statements that this audience has made. He draws on the fact that they know, at least some of them, that we are all children of God, whose loving presence envelops us and nurtures and nourishes us. He says yes to what is true beyond the boundaries of his fellow Christians. And he says no to those who have gotten, or to the path that has gotten some of them off track. It's not the case that we Christians have all the truth. And those outsiders are really groping about in the darkness. Outsiders to the faith are right about a lot of things. And to the extent that they're still groping about, we remember that God is there in the darkness, waiting for them and summoning them. 
A second important lesson we take from this passage is that the resurrection of Jesus is both the word of hope and judgment. It's not necessarily the case, though, that the hope is for us only and judgment is for those outside the faith. Paul says that God calls all people everywhere to repent. And if all means all, then we too will have to answer for what we have done wrong and the good that we have failed to do. Judgment begins with the household of God, it says elsewhere in Scripture. You know, opinion surveys show that many people's skepticism about the Christian faith stems from bad experiences they've had in the church or hypocrisy that they perceive amongst Christians. To persuade others, we have to get our own house in order. We have to repent and follow Jesus Christ. Now, judgment can sound like a negative thing. But there is a word of hope in judgment, a word that may also speak to the concerns of many non-Christians. Another reason why people are skeptical about the Christian faith is they wonder, is there really a powerful and good God given all of the bad things that are happening in the world? That might be the great known unknown, both for the faithful and for those outside the faith. And that probably requires a whole series of sermons to answer that question. But a modest answer or a way to begin to approach that question that arises out of the scripture is to say, the way things are today is not the way that things are always going to be. The world will be judged. And the world will be put right by the judge who makes every wrong right. So we live in hope. And finally, I think there's a lesson here about success and failure. Success and failure when it comes to conversations with people who do not follow Jesus Christ. You know, at the beginning of the book of Acts, uh, Peter preaches this sermon. We heard a portion of it in worship a couple of weeks ago. And it was so successful, 3,000 people were baptized on a single day. And we hear another sermon by Paul today. And it gets more jeers than it gets new disciples of Jesus Christ. So, what's the issue here? Is Peter just a better evangelist than Paul? Is he a better preacher than Paul? Well, not necessarily. People don't come to faith in Jesus Christ because of airtight arguments or eloquent preaching. People come to faith because the Holy Spirit awakens faith in them and sets them on fire with love for God because of what God in Christ Jesus has done for us. And some days, you know, um, whether the preaching is good or bad, whether the arguments are sound or unsound, the wind of the Spirit is blowing briskly, and many people are gathered into the faith. And at other times, the winds are calm. And if the wind is calm, it doesn't matter how good the preaching is, or how sound the argument is, or even how uh, commendable the lifestyle is. The important thing to do in all circumstances, is as our catechism says, and as Paul demonstrates in the scripture, meet friendship with friendship, meet hostility with kindness, meet generosity with gratitude, persecution with forbearance, truth with agreement, and truth and error with truth, and trust that the Holy Spirit is at work to awaken faith in the hearts of our fellow human beings. In the name of the one who is, and who was, and who is to come. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
Please rate and review this podcast so that we can reach more people with the good news of Jesus Christ. To support our ministry, go to www.haddonfieldprez.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the page. Grace and peace be with you.